Thank you, David. Thank you. Can, you, can, you can all hear me okay, yes? Yeah? Three people can hear me. Great. Okay, perfect. Um, <laughs> sorry, this uh, kink. Right. So um, it's fantastic to be down here at Google, at Googleplex. Thank you, David, and the 3Q team. I've been working with Kristen and the team, and they've been putting together some really, you know, uh, thoughtful sessions today. And, and I thought, ah, oh, you know, I, I did a presentation that was a, bit, a little bit dark and a little bit about how the internet's kind of taken over our lives. And, and I was chatting to David, and it was like, oh, how, how can we evolve that? How do we make it shorter? I normally talk for one to two hours, typically. I do workshops on this stuff. I've got 30 minutes. This is pretty dense, so, uh, so I hope you're caffeinated. Um, but really, this presentation called, is called The Kids Are All Right. But are the kids okay? In my role as a futurist, I like to ask the big questions. I'm curious about how the world's changing. Funnily enough, I actually worked for a company that was spun out of SGI in Silicon Valley um, 20 plus years ago called E.Piphany. The dot was super important back in the early 2000s when you worked in San Mateo. But like I worked in a lot of big data systems and then eventually worked in agencies uh, doing social media and, and data analytics and a number of different things. And it's interesting the way that the world has changed over the last few years. So I'm going to start off by just saying, you know, taking a look at how the world's changed. And really, I'm going to start off by looking at capitalism and influence. Now, since the early days of the, the 19th century, we've seen a huge amount of influence coming into our lives. Capitalism was, was pretty much born. And, and I've got these four images here. So uh, top left, that's the, uh, the Torches of Freedom. Edward Bernays, who was Freud's uh, nephew, basically invented the whole world of public relations and publicity and, and helped to boost capitalism in the early days. And he persuaded the suffragettes to smoke cigarettes in, in the Easter Day Parade in 1914 and walk along holding those cigarettes above their heads as torches of freedom. And he actually drove about 4% penetration of smoking in women in, in the US up to about 33% in about 15 years. Then just next to that, who remembers like um, pretending to smoke cigarettes using candy cigarettes? Yeah? It's insane to think that we did, insane. But it was fine, you know? <laughs> And then back, you know, that, that was from the 50s. So they're actually, uh, they're actually branded, like Marlboro had its own brand of candy cigarettes and Lucky had its own brand of candy cigarettes. And it was like, I can be just like dad. Yeah, that's not so good. I bet they weren't saying that about 40 years later when dad was lying in hospital, unfortunately. But then TV dinners. How do you plug people into advertising more? Well, you remove them from a family dynamic, which is the family dinner table, and you put these convenient family dinners in their laps, and then you all sit there watching the TV, Mary Tyler Moore show, or whatever, right? And, and, and that then moved into like the, the 70s and 80s, the Happy Meals, you have to collect them all, you have to come back, you have to consume the media that, that people like McDonald's and fast food and other people, then MTV and then all these other people. And capitalism has been a cavalcade that, that sort of been running away with itself. And we've, we've been willing participants. And this presentation is, is about being a willing participant, but it's also about becoming a very careful and considerate um, in, person that gets involved with these kinds of things. But let's go back to the internet. The early version of the internet was this. 
It was very much, uh, this is the ARPANET, it was very much about resiliency in, in light of nuclear war. So if you knocked out a node um, because um, a particular area in Utah got taken out, then you can still get from east to west and those communications being military or whatever could actually be maintained. And then here, down in the valley, at Stanford, this guy gave a presentation in 1968, so 50 years ago. He gave a presentation on the world's first personal computer. Got the mouse and the trackpad. He had hyperlinking in, in documentation. He, uh, he had desktop publishing. It was a two-day presentation to about 1,000 people. It's called The Mother of All Demos, and you can go to YouTube and you can see that there. It's fascinating. And, and there were a lot of people that were saying, ah, we're never going to have people having computers in their homes. I think that's ridiculous. Now we've got a situation where everyone's got computers in their pockets, right? Six billion people have actually got access to uh, mobile technology today. Six billion people, that's more people that have got access to clean running water in the world. Let's think about that, what's more important? And that'll be six billion people by 2020 that have got smartphones in their pockets. That means that they can do anything from like watching entertainment to running businesses to completely revolutionizing every part of the world. Whilst we don't have everyone on the internet right now, in the future, the proliferation of this, of this mobile technology will be able to connect everyone everywhere. And all sorts of connectivity is going to come to the world with satellite meshes and, and loon and whatever hitting more remote places in the world. It's an exciting time. But back in 1993, there really wasn't that many websites, and the internet was just starting. And 1993 is when I got onto the internet for the first time. I did applied psychology and computing at university to look at human-computer interaction, artificial intelligence, linguistics. I thought it was super interesting. I didn't realize that 25 years later I'd still be talking about it. But I'm glad that I am. But I first went onto the internet in 1993. And I, I sat down in front of a big green screen on a Sun Microsystems computer. And I dialed into a Norwegian university and I browsed their, their library catalog. Wasn't that sexy? Within two years, three years, you had bands like Massive Attack and Radiohead doing amazing things. You had all these websites and all, all the tech companies were putting together, you know, the GIF-based websites, remember those? I used to build them back in the day. I used to, use, I used to build um, websites using GeoCities. Do you remember GeoCities? It's a bit of a <laughs> walk down memory lane. But I'm going to talk about this. Does anyone know who this is? This is Josh Harris. Josh Harris was one of the first innovators around internet analysis and, and looking at what's happening in the world and also about media. And Josh Harris is a man that sort of really pushed the limits about thinking about what the internet will be. And a, a filmmaker called Andy Timina made a movie called We Live in Public. And uh, here's the trailer from that movie. The internet's like this new human experience. At first, everybody's gonna like it, but there will be a fundamental change in the human condition. One day we're all gonna wake up and realize that we're just servants. It's captured us. It was genius because nobody had done it yet. He was saying this is the way it's going to be. And he was right. I mean, he was right. He was selling companies for a couple million dollars. Well, we were all a bunch of kids getting paid 10 bucks an hour to try and figure out HTML. Josh was one of these incredible new idols everybody at Sunday wanted to be. I'm in a race to take CBS out of business. He's always trying to advance the inevitable. This is going to happen. Let's try it now. 
It is our function as artists to make the spectator see the world our way. People want 15 minutes of fame every day. So we built the bunker and showed them the future. I'm an alligator. I'm a mama, papa coming for you. We're going to record Stasi type of intelligence. The cameras were everywhere. There was cameras set up in the showers and the toilets. They're eating and shitting and having sex in public, and people ate it up. This was one of the most extraordinary activities I've ever attended anywhere in the world. Really, the question starts to become who is behind this, what's going on. I joined the call. Everything is free except the video that we capture of you. That we own. 1994-95, the early ideas around always-on video content, you know, the idea of vlogging, the idea of, of, of surveillance in a way, the idea of uploading content that you own to make money from that. It's really interesting. Go watch that movie, We Live in Public. But really, this is what the internet is today. It's a bunch of cables underneath the ocean and then running across continents. We sometimes forget that the internet is actually pipe work, right? But this, it's pretty simple. About six com companies actually own the rights to, to run those cables under the sea and operate this infrastructure. Um, but this, this is what's binding the world together. And the next evolution of it is to actually take it um, into satellite-based mesh networks and whatever. And I think it's a very exciting time to connect the world. But why do we connect the world? Well, there's been some really interesting phenomena since the beginning of the internet. Um, this is what I like to call, um, you know, what true freedom and democracy looks like today. True freedom and democracy, it looks like cats. Well, some of the most powerful devices we've ever had in our pockets, and these things are what we spend most of our time on. Thumb tribes. Do you remember the story about Justin Bieber going to Central Park in New York City? And uh, he was walking around, and the kids just left him alone. Didn't even notice that he was there because they were all playing Pokemon Go. Right? Heads down. Smombies. This is actually a real word. Smartphone zombies. Right? We know this. It's, it's, it's <laughs> a lot of people. I was going to say, it's the kids. It's not the kids. It's everyone. And I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone else, right? Uh, then there's Smombie safety. In the Netherlands, they've actually had to build these sidewalks. What they were finding was that kids were trying to cross the roads, but they weren't picking their heads up, and they were getting run over. They were either getting injured or killed. So what they decided to do was actually put um, the, the traffic lights into the pavement. See that at the bottom? So green and red and whatever. That's pretty, that's pretty fascinating as a phenomenon. Um, and then Kylie Jenner like, knocked a few billion dollars worth of value off of Snap a few weeks ago. A tweet from an influencer affects the stock market. And then everyone said, we hate the new Snapchat. And then over 1.2 million people went and rallied against it. It's like, we've never had this kind of weird activism in, in our lives. The internet's kind of given people a power, an anonymous power that they're sort of flexing. Unfortunately, that anonymous power extends its way into news. And we've actually, we know that there's a huge problem with the idea of fake news or, or you know, mistruths that are actually spread uh, virally through the internet. Uh, and this graph, literally from don't read this to just no, seriously don't read this, to you know, the people that I, I personally trust, like The Atlantic and The Wall Street Journal and, and, and The Hill, Vox, whoever, right? This has all been exasperated by 
how the internet's working, but also how social media is working as well. And I've been a big proponent for social, in, for social media for a long, long time. I think I've still got about four MySpace pages for different uh, music projects that I ran. I think Justin Timberlake still owns that, right? No. But I think it's, it's really interesting to start with a quote from Father John Culkin, who actually worked with Marshall McLuhan in Toronto on a lot of communications theory, right? Remember the medium is a message? Father John worked with him, and he was in the clergy. We shape our tools, and therefore our tools shape us. So we build the internet. It, it influences culture. We build social media. It influences culture, and we're willing participants. So I looked around for a bunch of different studies. Like, How long do we really spend it in our lifetime on the internet and on social media? So five years, over five years of our, our lives will be spent in social media. Uh, that's more than we spend eating. Uh, more than we spend socializing actually face-to-face -face, by a huge number, nearly three times, three times the amount. And I'm not too sad about um, laundry only taking six months out of my life. I'd like to remove that down to almost no time out of my life. However, I still have to do that. But we're kind of in this culture where it's like platforms are great. They're offering all of this value to us, and we're kind of like, well... Let's not complain. Let's not see the bad things. And if we do see the bad things, let's not talk about it. Let's not listen to the detractors. Let's not even take advice from each other. Let's just jump in. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing. This presentation isn't about not participating and stepping away. It's about being a lot more aware. And this is driving a lot of the behavior. I'm worried that I'm going to miss out. I was having a conversation with someone earlier and I, I switched off my Instagram account the other day because it wasn't driving me any business. That's my focus. I've still got a Facebook uh, account. Um, I don't follow, I've got a thousand friends. I don't follow a single friend. I don't hardly post anything at all to there. And uh, it, it's really interesting. Once you actually take the power away from the machine that needs to be fed, then it's kind of a useful platform for like events and messaging and whatever. And I'm, I'm aware about that. So let's talk about Facebook. We know recently there's been a lot of challenges from the Senate, right, about what Facebook can be. And uh, it's quite interesting how it's evolved. It went from like the poke poking. You remember poke poking? I, I'm not, I don't think it even exists anymore. Poking to the like button. And then from the like button to this representation of modern life. So if you look at this, not many people realize this. If you read this from left to right, this is, this is like a, a relationship with a loved one. You like them, you love them, you laugh with them. Wow, you did what? I'm really sad, and now I'm super angry. And then you leave that relationship, and then you find someone new. Oh, I like you, I love you. <laughs> when someone pointed this out to me, it's like, this is purposefully designed to mimic life. And that's what a lot of these networks are trying to do. We know the Cambridge Analytica study. We know that if you, if, you ha if you can know 300 likes of a certain individual on Facebook, you know them about as well as their spouse. This is a worry. We know that, I'm not really going to talk about what Cambridge Analytica did. This is from the University of Cambridge. Cambridge Analytica obviously then used this kind of knowledge to take us further. And there's about 100 different vertices of analysis that you can, you can take um, in Facebook, and it's getting bigger and bigger because as you get data and it's growing, and you've got lots of different uh, perspectives on what someone likes and posts and talks about, then you have infinite value. 
Now, data is the new oil is like what a lot of futurists walk around saying, but we're actually growing from a point where data is growing from 4.4 zettabytes a year today to about 163 zettabytes a year by 2025. As systems grow out, as we use data more, self-driving vehicles hit the roads, more cameras hit the roads, the internet of things, we're gonna be in a world that's not only surrounded but by data, but we, but we will be the data within that system. This is kind of, um, I was watching F8 this week. This is kind of brought me back to the study. Facebook tinkers with users' emotions in news feeds experiment. Oh, I'm, 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 there's an outcry on the streets and people are really upset. And this was back in 2014. And then they really tinker with people's emotions with Facebook dating. Right? I, they wiped $5 billion off of the market value of the company that owns Match.com in like an hour. The, the power of that company. It makes me wonder what's going on in life. You know, what are we doing? What are we choosing to put into the system? What level of participation are we choosing to have? How are we letting our kids and our loved ones get involved in this? And once they're involved, how do we interact with them? But really, I think that the revolutions are happening in China. Um, does anyone use WeChat in the room? Yeah. If this was China, everyone would be using WeChat. So what's really interesting, a billion monthly users. So sure, it's not as powerful as Facebook, but look at the potential of China. 800 million use WeChat pay across 13 countries in 25, uh, 13 currencies in 25 countries. You can even pay with crypto in there as well. So this power base is actually growing out in the app ecosystem. In fact, this is what's bundled into WeChat, and it's getting bigger every day. Messaging, social connections, mini programs and applications and games, wallets and payments, personal wealth funds in what's ostensibly a social network, um, e-commerce, credit scores. This is all the stuff that Facebook's kind of failed to make stick in the West, right? But in China, everyone's like on board because it, it jumped over legacy systems that were there in place. But that brings me back to thinking about families. And this is, uh, if you've got children, this is probably going to be one of the most harrowing five minutes of, of your day. I do apologize for that. But I'd like you to really revel in feeling uncomfortable about this stuff because I think it's important to feel uncomfortable. So I've already talked about the rise of the smartphone. Right? How many people in the room have got kids? How many people, in the, keep your hands up. How many people in the room, um, put your hands down if you don't give your kids devices, right? It, it, it's almost like 100% penetration. If you've got kids, give them devices, it could be quite useful. It can, but there's a worry. Um, it's even more worrying that you can get your baby, um, baby's first smartphone. This is a real product. <laughs> it's shocking, and it shocks me even more when you see babies with real smartphones as well. Really, really worrying to me. So around about the age of 10, children get their first smartphones. In fact, some kids are getting their first smartphones around the age of seven. Unfortunately, we're in a world where pornography consumption begins at eight years old and addiction begins at 11. Yeah, what? It's true. Sexting begins in the fifth grade. So, <laughs> because, you know, some of the, most of the traffic, certainly in North America, is actually from 
pornography websites. Unfortunately, there's very few uh, balance, uh, checks and balances on what kids can access. And sure, you can go into your devices, but there's always ways around. Hands up who was a, a sort of an ingenious kid when they were growing up, right? We're all smart people, right? You can always break in, steal your, steal your mother's cigarettes, go for a cigarette out the back at the age of 12, right? Did anyone else do that? Sorry, mum. But it gets really worrying. So the, the frontal cortex doesn't stop developing until your early 20s. So don't be surprised that if, you, if you're one of the people with kids or you've got, you've got people in your family that have got kids and you see them struggling with compliance to, to, to requests from parents or going to bed early or whatever, or they've got bags under their eyes and they've got a, a lack of impulse control, it means that their frontal co cortex is being affected by the screens that they're looking at and the, the mechanisms for driving dopamine hits through social media networks, videos and the such like. That impulse control is a, a real problem. And in fact, in, uh, in South Korea, they've actually had to build centers because South Korean kids use more devices and more screens than anyone else. And they've actually got a form of digital dementia by about the age of 18, 19, some of the worst users. And they're having to go through therapy to recondition those kids. What's happening with kids as well is, is really worrying. So when they're really young and they turn up at school, they're actually finding, this is a study from the UK, that kids are turning up at school and can't actually hold pencils. They're used to swiping left and right and touching. They haven't developed any level of wanting to like draw with crayons or anything like that. Uh, Patrick was given therapy sessions because he was gripping his pencil like a caveman held sticks instead of the correct tripod grip. And this is from the National Health Service, one of the chief pediatric sort of therapists. And these kids are gonna, having to go into therapy to recondition their muscles so they can even begin to pick up a pencil to start their education. It's worrying, right? Let's slap VR on kids' faces. It seems like the classroom has become sort of this, this new bastion of new technology. It's like, this is great for education. And sure, some of it is. I think VR is an amazing thing, immersion, but this just gets kids more screen time. And then you've got kids in Japan. Some of the shyest kids are being helped by Pepper, the robot from SoftBank. Non-human interactions and then a dependency potentially of people that need to have friends that are robots. And in Australia, they're using avatars for teachers that are just as effective as teachers, and artificial intelligence is going into online forums and being just as effective, and people can't tell them apart from normal human teachers. So where are we going with actually indoctrinating our kids into this new world? We're creating a new normal for them, and that new normal is something that they want to subscribe to and spend most of their time on it. And it's like, hey, mom, it's fine. I'm learning. And there's a real worry. But we also know that people are scared of robots and kids might actually, <laughs> there's actually some stories that um, some, some of these robots go into classrooms and the kids like, you know, obviously there's some kids that go and they push the robot over, they draw on them, they kick them, right? So, uh, so some researchers have built this robot, it's called Shelly. It's a little turtle. And if you hit it, its head disappears in, just like a real turtle. But if you, if you love it and you stroke it, it shines with bright colors and makes purring sounds like a kitten. But we're trying to teach kids to love robotics and robots because they're going to be everywhere in this world. That kid's about, what, 18 months old? That's not a robot. 
So, so even at an early age, these kids are like starting to realize that like, oh, like, you know, I for one welcome our robot overlords. It's like, what did you just say? Where's my iPad? But then I like to think about kid, what I call kid economics. It's, not, it's never been easy to persuade kids to do things like mowing the lawn, taking out the trash, doing their homework. I mean, this is kind of my biography, right? I was a terrible kid. But now we've got platforms. Chore Monster can reward your kids for doing the chores that you need them to do. And parents can look at what's happening and, and we can track, you know, the goodness of our family through digital. Um, has anyone used Sweatcoin? Someone came up to me um, in Toronto after an event that I ran there, and they said, oh, have you seen this? My kids will use this. And at, at, at lunch times and at break times, they run around the playground as fast as they can so they can earn sweat coin. This isn't like a cryptocurrency. This is actually just, it just creates tokens and they can buy things online. But what's happening with that data, right? And in, in New Zealand, this is kind of cool. It's called Magical Park, and you run around parks, you create this wonderland, and kids are finding that they're running for about 30 minutes with these augmented reality apps. So they, well, mate, you, you don't look around and enjoy time with your friends. You're running around with an iPad, but it's kind of a cool idea, right? Unfortunately, we've got a situation of identifiers and imported code. So hardware devices have got addresses. Cloud services... I've got locations that might change often. And then you've got applications which have got terms and conditions and ways of storing data. Those identifiers could carry on and carry on, and people can know where your kids run. The imported code is generally not checked. It was found in a number of different studies by the FTC and by the Washington Post that um, people don't check the imported code that advertisers give to, to app developers. And they say, oh, yeah, we'll just copy and paste it in. It'll be fine. And that we just write the terms and conditions because, hey, you know, we might advertise to your kids. Unfortunately, uh, out of 5,000 apps, there, were, there, was a very, uh, there was under half of the apps actually with very clear terms and conditions. Those terms and conditions... And the, the lack thereof has meant that we've been lulled into a false sense of security that our kids are safe. It's not. They're, everyone's selling data to everyone. So a message for parents and teachers, you have to teach and encourage boundaries of fair usage, responsible use of devices and social media. But there's a hierarchy of compliance, right? Cloud services, hardware devices, platforms. Then I think we're walking into a really strange world. Clarity of vision. Do you remember when baby monitors were hacked and put on the internet a few years ago by a Russian guy? That was worrying. Um, Snap. A few years ago, Google released the Google Glass, and people were fighting against people that were wearing them. And just a few years later, people were jumping out in front of people that were wearing Snap glasses and saying, hey, upload my images, right? It's a change. It's a mindset change. It's a cultural shift. Who's got an iPhone X, iPhone 10? Anyone got an iPhone 10? It's kind of cool with like the facial recognition, whatever. Um, I'm building a huge database right now of those. Um, I've got a great friend who designs the Meta 2 headset and the applications from within that and the user experience. Uh, but this augmented reality world is going to come to us. It's going to remove the screens that we look at, and we'll be having a reality in the room that we know doesn't really exist, but it feels viscerally real. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
por otra vez. No, cállate. So that, that's a short excerpt from video by Keishi Matsuda. It's called Hyper Reality. It's about 12 minutes long. You should go and watch that. Um, it, it's like a vision of the future. It was filmed down in Medellin in Colombia. It was a crowdsourced campaign raised over a million dollars. They create this incredible vision of the future, slight, slightly dystopian as well. Hands up who's got an Alexa device at home. Yeah? Well, your kids have got a new big sister and they don't need the parents anymore to answer any questions at all. Um, Mattel have just actually uh, sunsetted a project called Aristotle because it was too creepy to give their kids a voice-controlled uh, assistant at home. But Amazon, in pretty much uh, within a month, actually launched the, uh, the Echo Dot for Kids where it teaches your kids manners. Parents, you don't, you, the parents are being removed out of the way. Let's start kids early so that when they get the first credit card at the age of 18, they become those really true loyal customers of us. Of us. Then we've got self-driving vehicles. They're going to be driving around. They're going to be scanning the world. Um, Google's, Google's uh, mapping cars aren't going to exist in the future. Every single car that's got cameras uh, on board will be sharing that data, and there'll be brokered licensed agreements that we'll probably sign away when we actually sign into our vehicle when we get into uh, be driven around because they'll be self-driving. <clears throat> so we're kind of walking into surveillance capita capitalism, one cool service at a time. Something new comes along. Oh, yeah, I'm an early adopter. Let's go for it. This is about responsibilities and who we are. I think Mark Zuckerberg going in front of the, the Senate was truly just the tip of the spear. I think that he took uh, the brunt of, of anger and, and confusion about the modern world for the entire tech industry. I think it's the tip of the spear because it's the beginning of the conversation. Sure, regulation, but regulation needs to be far and wide spreading. We know that if we try and apply that to the thousands of companies that do store data, that inertia happens almost immediately. Um, so we have to have a, a new way of looking at this. <clears throat> Unfortunately, our, product, our family is the product and we've signed away control. Right? And this makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable when I have these conversations with, with tens of thousands of people every year as I speak at conferences. And this is a core message of, of what I talk about, about responsibility. I think we need to stop and realize that we, we can maintain some control of our own lives. We're humans, not algorithms, but we've actually got systems and applications and platforms and advertising that's trying to get us to react to them in algorithmic ways. If we can actually maintain new ways of thinking where we actually become more human again, that humanity is incredibly important. We want certainty and variety, significance and love. We want growth and contribution. We've been like this for thousands of years. We're going to want to be like this for a thousand more years. I actually think that we're in a future where we need to step up 
and design as a whole of these applications and infrastructures need to come from people that are experienced in family units. Um, I also think that there should be more women designers involved in all of this, where a deeper level of empathy is, is, is apparent in the design. I think the terms and conditions should be simple. I don't think we should sell any data related to any of our children's activities, and that should go from like the cloud to the hardware to the application level. I think we become lazy as application developers and just, yeah, oh, we'll just copy and paste. We'll get our lawyers to go through the terms and conditions. It's standard for everyone in the industry. Maybe we can make a new decision about what privacy means in the modern age. The question I come back to uh, is, you know, are the kids all right? I think the kids are all right if we actually help them to think differently about the world, that they've got a choice and that we've got a choice to use the platforms for what we need to use them for and not what they want us to use them for. Thank you very much.